Welcome, Weirdos. I'm your host, Jessica Fernando, and this is One Weird Chick. When I moved to Orlando, Florida in 2018, I was quick to notice a large missing person poster on the corner of South Apopka Vineland and Conroy Windermere Road. The poster contained a photo of a beautiful 20-something-year-old with long blonde hair and an infectious smile. Below her picture read, quote, Missing since January 24, 2006, Jennifer Kessie. End quote. Jennifer Joyce Kessie was only 24 years old when she went missing without a trace from her home in Orlando, Florida. She was 5'8", weighed approximately 130 pounds, and had the ability to light up a room just by entering it. Born on May 20, 1981, to parents Drew and Joyce, Jennifer grew up in Tampa, Florida, approximately 95 miles from central Orlando. She and her younger brother Logan were described by her family as the best of friends and, quote, an adventurous dynamo with a thirst for knowledge, end quote. Despite her sense of adventure, Jennifer always proceeded with caution as a result of her parents being held at gunpoint during her childhood. Jennifer graduated from Vivian Gaither High School in Tampa before attending the University of Central Florida, where she was a member of the Alpha Data Pi sorority. She graduated with honors in 2003 with a degree in finance. Jennifer received numerous job offers after graduation and accepted a job at Central Florida Investments Timeshare Company in Ocoee, Florida. A financial analyst, she was promoted twice in her first year. With her success at work, Jennifer purchased her first home, a condo, at the Mosaic at Millennia Condominium Complex. At the time, the complex was undergoing a change from apartments to condos and was filled with construction workers. It was reported that these workers made Jennifer feel uncomfortable because of their continued frequent verbal harassment. Just a year before her disappearance, Jennifer met Rob Allen at a trade show they were both attending for work. The two instantly hit it off. Despite Rob living in Fort Lauderdale at the time, 212 miles from central Orlando, the pair began dating and spent every weekend together. While the two were madly in love, the long-distance nature of their relationship was often a point of contention. Despite the frequent arguments, they often escaped from romantic getaways when they could. The week before Jennifer's disappearance, she and Rob had vacationed on St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. While they were away, 
Jennifer's brother Logan and two of his friends drove up from Tampa and stayed in her condo. Monday, January 23, 2006, was a day just like any other for Jennifer. Jennifer and Rob had returned from their vacation just the day before. Jennifer spent the night at Rob's home before driving directly to work the following morning. Given the distance between Fort Lauderdale and Orlando, it is likely that Jennifer would have left Rob's place around 5 a.m to arrive at work on time. Around 6 p.m. that same day, CCTV footage captured Jennifer leaving work. She placed her customary call to her parents and her brother on her way home. During her phone call with Logan, he explained that his friend accidentally left his cell phone at Jennifer's apartment during their visit. After locating the phone, Jennifer said she would overnight it to Tampa the next morning. At around 10 p.m., Jennifer made her final call for the night to Rob. Rob would later explain that they had had an argument while on the call, but that he expected that they would speak the next day. Rob would be the last person to ever hear Jennifer's voice. At approximately 10.40 p.m., Jennifer's phone was turned off. This initially struck Jennifer's parents as odd, since Jennifer used her phone as an alarm clock. It hasn't been determined if her phone was manually switched off, or if it had simply run out of power. There are also conflicting stories online that state that Logan's friend's phone the one left by accident in Jennifer's apartment, was also turned off that evening around the same time. However, due to the large amount of conflicting evidence about the phones both being turned off, there is no way to confirm the validity of this theory. The next morning, Rob's calls to Jennifer went straight to voicemail. He assumed it was because she was already in meetings for the day at work and planned to try again later. By 11 a.m., Central Florida Investments Timeshare Company started to become alarmed by Jennifer's uncharacteristic no-call, no-show. When their calls also went to voicemail, they decided to call Jennifer's parents. Upon learning of their daughter's absence from work, Drew and Joyce called Rob, who explained that he had also been unable to reach her. Becoming increasingly concerned, Jennifer's parents called Mosaic at Millennia and asked the property manager to perform a welfare check, permitting him to use the spare key to gain access to Jennifer's apartment. The property manager reported that she wasn't at home and that everything appeared normal. The manager also reported that Jennifer's car appeared to be missing from the complex, giving the impression that she had left for work earlier in the day. Described as a person who wouldn't, quote, go more than two hours without talking to somebody, 
whether it was her mom on the phone, or her boyfriend, or her dad, end quote. Jennifer's parents and Logan drove to Orlando. Logan arrived at Jennifer's apartment first and noticed some construction workers in a van in the parking lot. He approached them and asked if they had seen anything suspicious. Strangely, the workers refused to speak to Logan, even going out of their way to avoid making eye contact. At approximately 3 p.m., the Kessies arrived in Orlando. They stopped at the Orange County Sheriff's Office, but were sent to Orlando Police instead. Police officers were dispatched to Jennifer's apartment, where they met with her family. The shower in Jennifer's apartment was still wet, and clothes had been laid out on her bed. Jennifer's cell phone, Logan's friend's cell phone, her purse, and her car keys were all unaccounted for, leading investigators to surmise that she had left her work that morning. With no signs of a struggle, there was little law enforcement was willing to do. In Drew Kessie's words, quote, An officer came in, looked around for about 30 seconds and said, She probably had a fight with her boyfriend. She'll be back. And walked out. End quote. Her parents refused to believe that Jennifer would just take off without a word and began combing the area for any signs of her. Word of Jennifer's disappearance spread quickly, and just hours after their arrival in Orlando, the Kessies were making headlines everywhere. Shannon Butler, from WFTV Channel 9, was first on the scene, and, in her own words, states, quote, I remember that day so vividly, because when we showed up at that complex, we had backed our truck into a parking spot, and from where we were, you could immediately see a stairwell that was right in front of Jennifer Kessie's condo. And in that stairwell was a blonde woman standing there, and we later knew it was Joyce Kessie, Jennifer's mother and I will never forget the look on her face. You could see the anguish, and you knew immediately that something bad had happened here, and you knew in that moment that that woman's life would never be the same again. End quote. Three painstaking days would go by before the Kessie family would receive their first break in their daughter's case. Three painstaking days would go by before the Kessie family would receive their first break in their daughter's case. A woman came forward after seeing Jennifer's story on the news. She reported that she had recognized Jennifer's car from the news and said it was currently parked in her apartment complex, Huntington on the Green Condominium just a little more than a mile from Jennifer's home. Police confirmed that Jennifer's car was in fact at the neighboring condominium 
and an extensive search of the complex was warranted. A canine unit named Bo was dispatched in the hopes that he could provide further assistance in locating Jennifer. Bo circled Jennifer's car before leading law enforcement out of the apartment complex and down Americana Boulevard. He stopped briefly along the side of a supermarket before leading police to the intersection of Americana Boulevard and John Young Parkway. Bo then led law enforcement back to Mosaic at Millennia, stopping just short of Jennifer's front door. Later that same day, police obtained surveillance footage that showed a man parking Jennifer's car at the Huntington-on-Green condominiums. The individual in question appeared to drive Jennifer's car straight into a parking spot before reversing and re-entering the same space after straightening up the vehicle. The individual then sat in Jennifer's car for approximately 32 seconds before exiting the vehicle and leaving the property. Unlike CCTV footage, the surveillance footage obtained by the police was taken from a security camera. Instead of recording constantly, the camera took a still shot every three seconds. When played back, the extremely poor quality offered no clues about the stranger's identity. In addition, the face of the individual was completely blocked as he exited the condominium by the tall metal fence surrounding the property. The FBI and even NASA were summoned in the hopes that they could help identify the person in the footage, but to no avail. The FBI was able to surmise that the person in the video was between the heights of 5'3 and 5'5, but without a clear shot of the person's face, their identity remained a mystery. Despite the obstacles that the footage presented, police released it to the public in hopes that somebody would be able to make an identification. In the days and weeks that followed, flyers with Jennifer's face and information were handed out everywhere. Dozens of searches were conducted. Police, volunteers, and even private search groups combed the area to no avail. Seven months after Jennifer's disappearance, homicide detective Joel Wright took over Jennifer's case when the original detectives retired. Wright requested the assistance of Bill Moore at the MBI, Metropolitan Bureau of Investigation. MBI was able to obtain information on Jennifer's cell phone, namely all of her incoming and outgoing calls. In this day and age, obtaining cell phone records is relatively easy. However, 
Back in 2006, this technology was only just becoming readily available. Carriers were charging more than 4,000 US dollars at the time to release cell phone records to the authorities. Since this was initially deemed as a regular investigation case, it wasn't a priority for original investigators, and her cell phone records had never been looked into. Unfortunately, the records didn't offer anything new to the investigation. All of the employees at Mosaic, as well as the construction workers, were interviewed. At the time of Jennifer's disappearance, the condominium complex that she lived at was under construction. As several projects were underway at one time, many tradespeople were coming and going daily. Some worked for third-party trade companies, some were sole contractors, but most were undocumented workers. By the time the case landed in Wright's lap, it was three years after Jennifer's disappearance. It was challenging to locate undocumented workers who were present in 2003, and sadly, no persons of interest were established. Rob Allen, Jennifer's boyfriend, was immediately cleared of being a suspect in her disappearance, as both cell phone records and alibis placed him in Fort Lauderdale at the time. When asked for his opinion as to who could have been responsible for Jennifer's appearance, Detective Wright maintains that he believes it was somebody connected to Mosaic at Millennia. Quote, I would say probably someone who was working there, or living there, or both. Someone who knew when she came, when she left to go to work, and had been watching her. One person police refers to as Ben agreed to take a polygraph test. He went on record and stated that either on the 16th or 17th of January, the month in which Jennifer disappeared, he and another worker police referred to as Chino were at Jennifer's condo going over the work she needed to be completed. Around the same time, law enforcement received a tip from a housekeeper who worked at Mosaic at Millennia. The housekeeper claimed that they had seen the CCTV footage of the person of interest and recognized that person as Chino. When Wright searched Chino's full name in the police tip line database, he discovered that a tip about Chino had been reported during the first week of Jennifer's disappearance, which had never been followed up on. The tip from the housekeeper was the second tip received about Chino, officially making him a person of interest. Chino denied any involvement in Jennifer's disappearance. He agreed to pre-interview questions, followed by a polygraph test, and passed both. 
Now, in case you're wondering, pre-interview questions are a series of questions that take place before a polygraph test is done. More times than not, pre-interview questions are how confessions are obtained rather than the polygraph test itself. When questioned about Chino, Ben, however, made a chilling statement to authorities. Quote, Chino did work in her condo the week before she passed away. End quote. This statement made law enforcement's hair stand on end. When asked to clarify this statement, Ben said that he just quote-unquote assumed that Jennifer had passed away because she had been gone for so long. With no concrete evidence to say otherwise, Chino was officially cleared as a person of interest. There are several theories about what might have happened to Jennifer, none of which, without evidence, can be proven. One theory that was considered by law enforcement was the potential that a serial killer may have taken Jennifer as they made their way through town. Another, more common theory suggests that Jennifer may have been the victim of sex trafficking. MBI agent Bill Moore doesn't rule out this theory, but says, quote, Anything is possible, but I think that's on the far-fetched side. Usually, it's someone who is a runaway, a throwaway child, who's been nurtured and cared for by a pimp, end quote. Detective Wright believes that Jennifer was abducted on the morning of the 24th of January from her car as she made her way to work, that there was a struggle over control of the car as she drove out of her condominium that Jennifer ultimately lost. In 2010, the Kessie family pleaded with the Orlando police to hand over Jennifer's case to someone who could look at it with a fresh set of eyes. Orlando police agreed and handed over the investigation to the FBI. But, just a year later, the FBI returned the case to Orlando police after making no arrests. In 2012, the Kessie family's frustration with Orlando police finally came to a head. For years, Jennifer's family had requested that her case be changed from an active investigation to a cold case. An active investigation keeps the files from being made public. The Kessies wanted the files so they could investigate Jennifer's disappearance themselves, claiming that Orlando police had been negligent in the first 48 hours of Jennifer's case. When their request was denied, the Kessies hired an attorney. They also hired a private investigator to stand by in case they won the rights to their daughter's records. However, police chief John Mina insisted that he had a detective working Jennifer's case full-time and her files would stay within his department. Quote, 
It is not our practice to turn over files or case notes or information to anyone in the public. We believe that that could possibly jeopardize this investigation, as well as set a precedent for future investigations. End quote. In 2018, a new police chief was sworn in, and he decided to cooperate with the Kessie family. Jennifer's file was finally handed over to them, though they were in disarray and appeared as though no official notes were taken over the past 10 years. Paul Sisko, the Kessie family attorney, stated that, quote, there's no guidebook to tell what's happened as far as I can tell between 2012 on any significant activity on the case. I was fairly shocked by that. End quote. It took over three years for the Kessie family to win the right to have their daughter's case files. However, Joyce Kessie laments, quote, It really wasn't given to us. We paid a hefty sum for it. End quote. In order to recoup some of the costs that Jennifer's files cost, the Kessie family had to set up a GoFundMe account to pay for all the legal fees. If you would like to donate to the Kessie GoFundMe account and help the family pay their legal fees, the link can be found in the source material for this episode. In a statement sent to WFTV Channel 9, the Orlando police stated that the department, quote, remains committed to finding the answers to the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie. Despite our 16-year commitment, there are some cases that remain difficult to solve. End quote. Today, Drew and Joyce Kessie say that they are in charge of finding their daughter. Quote, There is no police department that has Jennifer's case. By contrast, the very first point is that Orlando Police Department is no longer responsible for finding Jennifer Kessie, and we are okay with that. End quote. January 24, 2023 marked 17 years since Jennifer Kessie's disappearance. On the website, jenniferkessie.com, Jennifer's family make their final plea. Quote, We desperately need the public's help. Please utilize any and all social media private messaging to contact our investigative team. It's easy and safe and we do see everything that comes through. Contact a lawyer with your information to get to us or clergy or media directly. Your identity does not have to be known. Information is key. Our tip line is 941-201-4009. End quote. There is still so much left unanswered in Jennifer's case, and her family can't rest until they know what happened to their daughter. If you have any information related to the case, the Kessie's tip line again is 
201-401-4009. Thank you for joining me for another episode of One Weird Chick. I'm your host, Jessica Fernando, and until next time, stay spooky. One Weird Chick's opening theme is created by Brielle Johnson, and logo is by Lauren Adams. Follow One Weird Chick on Instagram and Facebook for more.